Joe McCarthy was the manager of the New York Yankees in the 19... No, I'm kidding. Um, there was a Joe McCarthy who managed the Yankees in the 1920s and was one of the most successful, but we won't be dealing with him tonight. The other Joe McCarthy, tail gunner Joe, the devout uh, anti-communist um, senator from Wisconsin. I wanted to begin, though, um, since we are in the newly rehung gallery, and this question comes up a fair amount, and, and, and recently we've had a spate of criticism either politically or culturally oriented, about who exactly gets into the portrait gallery. And originally, when the Romans and the Greeks came up with the idea of a pantheon, the idea really was to have the heroes of the society enshrined, as a, essentially both to memorialize them and to inspire other people, particularly the children and the other citizenry in those republics. Um, and that, that template continued into the 19th century with the, with the founding of the British National Portrait Gallery, the first and still the greatest, really, uh, portrait gallery in, in the world, where it, it really was a gallery of heroes. And gradually, as history became more scientific and we became more inclusive and more, um, in a sense, self-critical about what it is that we did, um, we broadened the definition of, of who should get into a portrait gallery. In some senses, we broadened it in a good way. Many of the people who get in now uh, would not have, been, have gotten into a 19th century portrait gallery, which tended to dominate, be dominated by people who were involved in making the state, generals, presidents, prime ministers, and so on. Um, we have a much more democratic and inclusive list of people who get in now. And the other thing that we do, um, and I'm going to try and keep politics out of this as much as I can and treat Mr. McCarthy, Senator McCarthy as an historian, we also have people whose reputations are at best conflicting or controversial, um, and we even have bad guys. We have villains. Um, John Wilkes Booth is in our collection. Lee Harvey Oswald is in our collection. Um, we have people who are um, traitors. We have people who have difficult reputations. And the criterion now is to have people who made a major sizable impact on the history and culture of the United States. And it's hard to say that Joseph McCarthy was not somebody who did not, down to this very day, have an incredible, powerful impact on American politics and culture. Joe McCarthy, Appleton, Wisconsin. Um, I've forgotten when he was born, uh, 1908. Um, had a lower middle class upbringing. He dropped out of high school very early. Um, to, to raise chickens, and that didn't work for him. And he went back to he went back to high school, finished it remarkably quickly when he was age 20. Got through Marquette University in Wisconsin and was Marquette Law School um, in record time. It's a mistake for anybody who's an anti-McCarthyite to think that he wasn't an incredibly smart man. He was, uh, as his law career proved. He was elected as a judge early on. Um, developed a reputation for handing down really meticulous rulings which were rarely overturned. And in 1942, he makes the shrewd, and also I'd have to give him credit for this, he joins the Marine Corps, in part looking out for his subsequent political career, both as a judge and what he hopes to be an elected career. It's an interesting question with portraits about whether they reveal character and what the relationship is between character and success. Can bad people do good things? Can good people do bad things? Um, and it's a very tricky proposition as an historian to even try and address that question, let alone answer it. It's probably impossible. But McCarthy, very early on in his career, in his life, starts to show character traits which are at best unpleasant and antisocial, and then in the public sphere become actually damaging both to himself and others. He 
doesn't seem really capable of telling the truth if he's involved in a, in a political quarrel with someone. He develops very early on a, 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 a tendency to smear them with a variety of factual errors. In his first race, as for judge, he, he, he mischaracterizes his opponent. And that warning bells are not really caught on with people. His, they, it, 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 it's seen as politics as usual, and he gets away with it. He, he is a charming man in many ways. He's a bit of a kind of overbearing alpha male of the certain type. He loved to play poker. He loved more than one drink at a time, which, of course, would be his downfall. Um, but he begins to, to manifest this tendency of, of a certain lack of of control, self-control, whether it's with the truth or with his own personal behavior. In the Marine Corps, he serves honorably, but he inevitably, again, having evidence, these tendencies towards exaggeration. When he comes out of the war, he immediately starts to exaggerate his career. He comes back to Wisconsin in 46, uh, runs for the Senate against Bob LaFollette of the famous LaFollette progressive Wisconsin family, uh, essentially maligns LaFollette. McCarthy is a Republican. Um, for actually no real reason. Originally, he was a Democrat, and he moves over to become a Republican, I think, just because he thought it might be easier to get in office. He beats LaFollette in a very hard-fought, closely-run campaign for the Senate seat, um, and then swamps his overmatched Democratic opponent and takes office in the Senate. He runs in large measure on being tail gunner Joe. He was not a tail gunner. He, did, he was in the, in the military wing of the Marine Corps, and he was an intelligence officer who got himself some flights over occupy, or enemy territory in Pacific. And he exaggerates this war record to the point where he seems to have won the war of the Pacific single-handedly, um, exaggerates, again, the member and danger of the missions that he flew, gets himself awarded through persistent lobbying once he becomes a senator, the Distinguished Flying Cross for having flown 25 combat missions, which he did not. Um, he had trouble with numeracy early on. That Originally, he flew 14 missions, then he flew 17, then he flew some 30 missions. And that lack of uh, arithmetical ability would later mark his career as an anti-communist, as we'll see. He gets himself into the Senate, where he becomes popular. He's very much a clubbable man in the Senate's clubhouse. Uh, he liked late-night poker games. He's affable. He get-along, go-along kind of guy. But very early on, he, he, out of ambition, maybe perhaps for wealth, it's a little uncertain, he makes himself very um, much too openly the, the instrument of the sugar uh, lobby. He becomes known as the senator from Pepsi-Cola because of his attempt to do away with sugar um, tariffs and sugar restrictions on sugar in order to aid the soft drink um, industry, particularly Pepsi. And his really controversial move, which gets him exiled from the powerful committees on which he is on to the D.C. Public Works Committee, is that he defends the Germans who are brought to justice for killing American soldiers in the Battle of the Bulge at Malmody. There was a... a, a the, the Germans captured in the encirclement of Malmody during the battle. They captured a great many American uh, prisoners, in part due to subterfuge. They weren't dressed as German soldiers, which itself is an act of a violation of the Geneva Convention. They executed the Americans out of hand. And McCarthy, in, 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 a, in a weird attempt, I think, to gain 
votes among the German Americans of Wisconsin defends them. Well, this doesn't stand. After World War I, you could do that because Germany was considered really just another power. But after, after the revelations about, of Nazism, it's something that, that makes McCarthy, it's a miscalculation. But I think it also speaks more widely to McCarthy's right-wing sympathies, which we do have to address, that coming out of Wisconsin as a kind of isolationist, anti-elitist, um, and this, this strain of admiration that's buried in there for the German Wehrmacht or even the Nazis is something that, that I think needs to be at least considered in his subsequent role as a, as a, as a devout anti-Stalinist, anti-communist. McCarthy, though, gets shipped out to the, to the, to the D.C. Public Works Commission Committee, which I believe is probably the lowest-ranking least desirable committee. I'm sorry to tell you district residents that, but Congress doesn't really care about you. And that committee has very little power. McCarthy looks for a way, this is towards the end of his term, he's looking for a way to revive this flagging career. And in 1950, he hits upon the notion of, of an anti-communist crusade. 1945 to 1950, as you'll remember, or at least, or, or at least we'll recollect, is in a period of incredible chaos ideologically as our former ally, the, the Soviet Union, becomes in effect our enemy with the end of the, the end of the Second World, the defeat of, of fascist Germany. Um, again, this kind of this kind of changing sides element. We'll remember that the war began with the Nazis and Stalin making a pact, which subsequently gets broken. The ideological shifts really become bewildering. Um, the Soviet Union under Stalin is not quite as interested in worldwide revolution as it once had been, but what they are interested in is furthering the, 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 the military-industrial complex and the great power status of the Soviet Union. They had an extensive, very good spy network, both in England on the continent and in the United States. They were very efficient, they were very effective, and they had the advantage of what came to be known somewhat pejoratively as fellow travelers, which could range from people who were well-meaning socialists who bought the idea that, well, who, who legitimately bought the idea that through socialism you could have an alternative to the brutalities of capitalism, all the way to people who were out-and-out members of the Communist Party of the United States, and thereby, because of the, the Soviet domination of the common turn, effectively uh, ideological, if not actual, agents of, of the Soviet state government. Um, and the Soviets, both in both in in Britain in particular, with the with the atomics, the Cambridge spies, and then in the United States, um, with committed leftists um, like Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, um, Alger Hiss, the panoply of other atomic spies, um, is able to very effectively infiltrate a variety of forms of the American government. Now. This is where this all gets very controversial and complicated because on, in February 1950, McCarthy, his career is flagging, makes a speech before the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia, and claims that he has a list in his hand of 205 active communist agents who are working for the State Department. A statement going back to his problems with numeracy, which is certainly not true, which was derived from the fact that some 300 uh, people had been invest investigated um, 75 had been dismissed for a variety of disciplinary reasons, not, in, not including the fact that they were members of the Communist Party. So McCarthy comes up with a 205 figure based on the 75 who'd been dismissed. The problem with all of this is the next time he gave the speech, it was 57 people, then it was 
72, then it was 140, and then, of course, it was a conspiracy so immense that you could barely begin to fathom it, which required the, the, the intervention of Congress. The ironic thing about this in terms of the McCarthy's career and his relationship with the other great anti-communist of the period, Richard Nixon, is that McCarthy, in his Wheeling, West Virginia speech, plagiarized Richard Nixon's speech from the previous year in 1949 when Nixon ran for Congress about the influence of communists in the government. Um, which, again, shows a nice um, sense of judgment on Joe McCarthy's part. Um, the thing about all of this, and it's become controversial throughout the ages, is there actually were communist spies in the American government. There's the, and, and we're dealing with a period of ideological and, 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 and cultural conflict, which, which was, in effect, a substitution of war by other means, because there was very much the fear that the United States was going to go to war. The Soviet Union detonated its atomic bomb in 1949, which took the United States, which had no spy presence really in the Soviet Union at all. Uh, it took us totally by surprise. In 1953, they would detonate a hydrogen bomb, which caused even further panic. Um, there are great power oppositions throughout the continent, most notably over Berlin and in Germany. And there was really an issue of not just ideological, but the sense that in some ways the World War II would continue uh, with a beaten Germany in the middle and the United States effectively um, duking it out with the Soviet Union and an increasingly desolated middle Europe. Um, the problem was the methods by which one went about rooting out or discovering um, these spies, and also distinguishing people who had, under the Constitution, protected to believe what they want. It was illegal to be a member of the Communist Party USA. Um, and, but up to that point, exactly how did you d determine what was and what wasn't a subversive? And this is where McCarthy really begins to, um, A, become popular, and B, become controversial as he exists down to the present day. He holds a series of, of hearings... Um, he, he, because he's, a, he's one of the committees that he's on is dealing with government operations, he very craftily uses that to investigate who is working for the government. He makes charges against the army that there's a, that in the Monmouth, New Jersey military base, there are 45 active communists. That panics the army into, instead of actually doing a fair and legitimate investigation of what might well have been subversive activity, instead they peremptorily fire 45 um, uh, soldiers in Monmouth, New Jersey. Um, McCarthy, because of the, because essentially there's a period, I won't say it's hysteric because I don't think you should ever characterize public opinion as hysterical or panic, but because of this period of heightened concern and sensitivity in which the American people seem to be um, willing to sacrifice civil liberties on the altar of national defense, McCarthy becomes very popular. Um, it, 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 it's a, it's he is the most extreme of the congressmen or senators or public figures who are arguing for the communist threat. Um, many, in fact, many, including people that we would call liberals like Arthur Schlesinger Jr., um, later an ally of the Kennedy family, um, are making roughly the same point. It's a legitimate question of what the role of the Soviet Union is in influencing American politics. McCarthy, though, goes much further than this and whips up an hysteria in which if you subscribe to certain newspapers, if you bought certain books, um, in one famous case, he has the army intimidated into investigating somebody who still retains an allegiance to a man who turned out to be his brother who once attended a socialist rally at Madison Square Garden. Well, that's really stretching the point from 
Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, who we now know were actually spying, who were transferring secret or classified information to the Soviet Union, and people who are just exercising their right to free speech, their right to free inquiry, and all the rest. McCarthy, though, rampages through the federal government, making charges which he can't support. The just, McCarthy has had a bit of a comeback in recent years as the right wing has tried to rehabilitate him and the effectiveness by essentially what, what I'm saying, which is that there were communists and there were spies. Ergo, McCarthy was validated in what he did and how he did it. My argument to that would be that the FBI and the other police uh, agencies of the United States was doing a perfectly effective job finding the spies who had worked at Tennessee, the Rosenbergs, and all the rest of it, David Greenglass. They were doing a much better job than the British were, for instance, who made it, managed to leave everybody in place well into the 1960s, and in the case of Winford Blunt, into his rise to become the Queen's art curator. Uh, so what I would argue is that, in fact, Joseph McCarthy should not really be considered in any way, shape, and form as an effective agent against communism or against the Soviet Union because none of his charges ever stuck. He was never able to bring anybody to Brooke as a communist. He was never able to uncover a spy ring. He made charges in large measure because he liked the applause. And one of his big mistakes was, in 1953, he goes after the U.S. Army. The Army, at this point, had begun to recover slightly from its panic state early on. He makes a series of wild charges as he, as he investigates Army bases, um, USIA libraries, and a variety of things. And here again, you're dealing with an ego that's out of control. I go back to the sense of, in which a character becomes destiny in a way that he's unable to control his lust for power and the extent to which when he talked, when he started off with something that might be plausible, he quickly got out of control. He browbeat generals who'd had distinguished combat records. And it wasn't just that he criticized them, but he broke them down. Um, he, 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 he insulted them in vicious, vile, and personal terms. And it becomes more than just an element of public policy in which you're trying to, to, to make the government run smoothly. And in, 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 in this, there's a variety. It's, it's easy enough now, 50 years, 60 years later, to look at this in somewhat comic terms. There's a, there's a fantastic exchange where he investigated the libraries of the United States Information Agency overseas, and he would inquire of, the, of either the librarians themselves, these poor bureaucrats who are working in Berlin buying books, or, or the head of the USIA, why are you buying these books? And then he would have the authors in. And, and he asked, on one famous exchange, he asked the mystery writer, you know, why is it that the USIA has bought 385 copies of your book worldwide? And Hammett goes, well, first of all, I didn't buy it. And second of all, they must be good books. But that doesn't spare Dashiell Hammett, who was a member of the Communist Party um, and, and refused to answer grand jury testimony, as was his constitutional right, from going, um, going to jail. And that, of course, is the problem, is that in <clears throat> McCarthy's... Um, pursuit of the communists that he thought were existing, he manages to violate the, what I would take to be the civil liberties of many of the people that he pursued using the IRS and the tax investigative uh, uh, power of the United States and just the simple crushing burden of being a private citizen and having to hire a lawyer and ultimately in the case of Hammond and many others having to go to jail. Um, and it really becomes a question with Americans about how far you will go in allowing um, personal liberties to be sacrificed for national security interests. And I would argue that um, in maintaining that balance, um, that McCarthy went too far and that in a way, the, you know, he becomes 
the tyrant in a way that we were supposed to be fighting against. Um, this great picture is done in 1954 at the R.M. McCarthy hearings, and I'll return. Portraits, you know, the, the, the standard way that we do portraits is the oil portraits that you see here of Toni Morrison and Tom Wolfe. They're the most highly established, iconic pictures that we do when we celebrate an individual. But we've got, in the same way that we've democratized the collection, we are also more interested in other ways of portraying individuals. And this, of course, this is a news photo, in fact, by George Thames, who photographs McCarthy um, in his familiar role of questioning a witness at the Army McCarthy hearings of 1954, in which the Army, which, which Congress sets up in effect to investigate McCarthy, turns the tables on him, reveals him. It's one of the first great moments, by the way, in television, um, where television becomes a cultural force as we now know it um, to be. In fact, it was a more of a cultural force then because it was rare. It wasn't as ubiquitous. These days, everything's on television, so it kind of loses its impact. But back then, it was on television, and it was a sensation. And when the people saw it, you know, the brief career of McCarthy from 50 to 54, they decided they really didn't like what they saw. And as McCarthy browbeat witnesses and 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 hectored them, kept them from answering, badgered them, badgered indiscriminately. It really became something, it, 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 when, when I was a student, I didn't quite understand the McCarthy hearings because they didn't have anything at all to do with communism or Stalinism. They just seemed to be people dealing with somebody who was out of control. And the climactic moment of that is the defense counsel, uh, Mr. Welch, saying to, and you can see it in the, in a, in, in the newsreel footage of, you know, Senator, have you no shame? Have you, you know, he browbeating a poor young witness, um, you know, an associate in the law firm, the man who was just doing his constitutional job as a lawyer. And McCarthy, that is the moment in which they, the tide breaks for McCarthy, this brief period in which he is able to ride the wave of this publicity and, and, and genuine national opinion against that against state and Soviet state intrusion into American politics, the Cold War beginning, and all the rest of it, that they realized that this was not how to go. And he, within, in short order, he had always raised a certain amount of distrust. For one thing, he was seen as a kind of a primitive, an outsider. He was seen as a willing instrument, and he never really recognized that. It's kind of pathetic. Eisenhower and, the, and Bob Taft and the Republican hierarchy tolerated him as an election go, you know, an election issue. Somebody could get out the vote, who could throw red meat to the mass or the base, as we would now call it. But they never really liked him, and McCarthy didn't do much to make himself liked. Um, and they were very quick to turn on him, and, and, and he's censured in 1954, and he dies soon thereafter. Essentially, he drank himself to death in a very close order. He disappeared um, as suddenly as he arrived politically, but he lives on in the concept of McCarthyism. There are very few people who have an ism named after them. Um, even Hitler didn't get to be an ism. It was Nazism. Um, but there is McCarthyism, a term coined by Herb Block, the Washington Post uh, cartoonist whose exhibition is on the second floor. Um, and there's some nice cartoons of the, of the, of the McCarthy era down there. Um, and he lives, McCarthyism lives on, and I was reading in the papers today, or just talking to people about, you know, in, the, in the current political comment about which I, climate in which I will not comment, um, about unsubstantiated slurs, that the, the censorship on the basis of who or what you were assumed to be rather than what it is you actually said. 
Um, and I actually would ask for a return to the original meaning of McCarthyism, because I think in some senses the word has become denatured. It's, it's too ubiquitous. It's too easy. If you're in a political meeting, as I unfortunately sometimes am, um, it's too easy to assume anybody who criticizes you or keeps you from talking is that that's McCarthyism, um, as opposed to just smearing me. I mean, it's like you can smear me, but don't call me McCarthy. I, uh, because what I think McCarthyism demonstrated is the use of the power of the government. And I think that needs to be kept distinct from somebody just shooting off their mouth or somebody being nasty or somebody being mean. And I, I really think that the crucial issue of McCarthyism, which I don't think we've totally assimilated, is the fact that the, is, is the state has the obligation to behave better than its citizens do. And the, the state has the, has the value and the right of, up, of upholding the values that, that, that we most cherish. And it's the state that should always be most careful in the charges that it, it, it renders against its people. And to that extent, I would like to return to the actual meaning of McCarthyism, which was the use of government power ostensibly to maintain the values of the state, but in fact to subvert it and, in effect, to bring it into threat. Thank you. No, when I was right. Where was the attorney general? Where was the different arms No, that's the interesting point. Is McCarthy was tremendously powerful, both popular, both publicly. I mean, he wins re-election in a landslide. He has public opinion with him, um, it, and, and it's this very interesting sea change. Um, where he goes from being very influential with a lot of backers, but he just simply goes too far. Um, to that extent, the much greater politician, Richard Nixon, is able to carefully calibrate exactly what and where you, what you should do, how far you can go. McCarthy, I, and I'll go back to my, my unsubstantiated view of him just being simply an erratic character. Um, and, you know, the, the sense of, of, of personality or character will be revealed by the way that you behave is that he just lacks the discipline to keep to turn himself into a political figure with any continuing popular standard. Uh, I mean, there are threats at the time. The left do see him not maybe as a little Hitler, but they do see him as perhaps, you know, a, you know kind of a Mussolini-like character with a potential for a mass following. But he simply temperamentally can't do it. He's, he's tremendously disorganized. He, dr- he drinks. All, he is, he's very... Sir, could you, you're making me a little nervous. Could you... Could you step a little? Thanks. Yeah, you were kind of moving that way. Um, thanks. Um, but unlike, unlike, say, 19th century Europe with you know, the, the strong man, or the man of the general, the boulangiers in France and all the rest of it, um, he's never able to command a mass following. But he does, and this is where it's very important to take him seriously, he does articulate a strong strain of militant anti-communism, anti-Soviet uh, feeling, which gets transferred as well into a very almost knee-jerk pro-Americanism and a distrust for elites, of elites, which we see, and I will just say it, we see in certain strands in, in the, the radical right in the Republican Party today. The sense, his damaging comment about Dean Acheson is not so much that Dean Acheson is a communist, but that Dean Acheson was a striped pants cookie pusher from Harvard. He was an ineffectual fancy pants. There's an element there of kind of, of homophobia as well. Um, but, but the point really was that these are, these are the smart guys who have sold honest Americans out you know, for, for their own ideological enjoyment. 
And what kept McCarthy, to repeat myself, what kept him from having a mass following as opposed to a brief period of incredible influence was his temperament. His temperament brought him to power, brought him to prominence, but he, it let him down. In the, same, in the same way that he lied about his war record, he lied about communists. And the, the curious counterfactual is in, in the attempt by the, by the radical right in the Republican Party today to bring him, to rehabilitate him, if the Soviet Union could have planted a double agent who would do more damage to the anti-communist cause in America, they could not have done better than Joe McCarthy. I mean, the notion, in fact, it's, if I was more imaginative, it would make an excellent, excellent thriller that McCarthy unwittingly is the greatest anti pro-Soviet agent because he discredits anti-communism. It becomes very difficult to pursue as, as, as the, 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 the actual spas, uh, however many there were, and I'm, I'm not sure they were, they, they, after 1954 there were all that many. I think the FBI caught most of them. But nonetheless, McCarthy in his excesses does more damage to what was a legitimate national security cause than the, than the people who were members of the Socialist Party or the Hollywood Ten or the people who you know, attem- attended or even were members of the Communist Party. And so if in some future unveiling of the Soviet archive we see that the Soviet Union had an agent in place in Appleton, Wisconsin in 1932, I would be very interested to hear about that. I'm being far-fetched, but nonetheless, I think it's an interesting point. I think that also the other thing, whenever anybody says, and this is one of the benefits one of the supposed benefits of history is that you compare your time with other times. I think it's very difficult emotionally as opposed to factually to look back at a particular period of time and, ex- and, and, and figure out what exactly the emotional state of the people was. And between 1945 and 1955, um, coming off a horrendous world war, just as America becomes the dominant power in the world, to see that power threatened by what is clearly and overtly a major power which is ideologically as well as politically opposed to you causes a degree of tension in the people that we need to understand and not dismiss. And it was on that tension that that Joe McCarthy prayed. And fortunately, his temperament let him down. That tension was real. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean... the. No, the whole, and particularly after the atomic bomb with the notion of the atomic, the dropping of the bombs in, in Japan and then the explosion of the Soviet bombs, there really is the sense of total annihilation here. And the fact that the Soviets had concentrated most of their spying energy on the atomic program um, is a cause of greatest concern. And as we've learned recently, despite the denials, the the Rosenbergs and Sobel and the others were, in fact, Soviet agents. I mean, it was denied for years and years, but Alger Hiss was, you know, at least a, a, a second-tier Soviet spy, and he's, you know, high up in the State Department. There was a real problem. How you solve that problem, it, it's like the 19th century radicals who were accused of burning down the barn in order to kill the rats, and it's, it's a matter of how far you go with this. And again, they gradually began to realize quickly that they'd gone too far. I, I think there was the fond hope by people like Eisenhower and Taft that they could control him. 
And, and again, we're dealing with a very short period of time, four and a half years. So, so to say that they didn't react quickly, I think, is true enough. But I think that people like Taft, who was an isolationist from Ohio, a fervent philosophical anti-communist, um, there was a notion that they could use him. He would get, as I said, get out the vote. Um, and that he would animate their cause, that he would, he would make it apparent to the American people that we were under danger. ICBMs, rockets are being tested. There's the, you know, the, the, the beginning of the kind of Cold War paranoia that we could all, well, it wasn't really paranoia, but the element of, of, of uncertainty. Um, and they thought they could control him. I don't think anybody really liked him. They recognized him as a force of nature. Eisenhower, when he was urged, once he became president, to take on McCarthy personally, First of all, Eisenhower was not going to have a president go after a senator. There was an element of inequality there in terms of just almost political propriety. But he literally said, I am not going to get into the gutter with him. I mean, for a, for a man, a senator who had attacked, as Ian just said, George C. Marshall, probably the greatest, the greatest one of the two greatest generals of the late of the, in American history, um, if he would attack Marshall for being pro-communist, I mean, Eisenhower... It would have been, you know, he would have turned his guns on him. The wildness of these attacks both attracted and then also repelled the people who benefited from him. Um, and gradually they distance him, and he, he loses his censure vote decisively. It's like 75, 25, those aren't the numbers, but he loses, he has a very small rump of support among very conservative Republicans. Um, and as I said to the, the answer to the, previous, the gentleman's previous question, he just never, they, 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 he never transferred it into an organization. I mean, he, he, he's, a, he's a rogue. Um, he, he's useful for the Republican Party and, and conservative Democrats for a little while, but he leaves nothing behind him. Um, and and it's, it's a really amazing episode in American history. <laughs>